Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is very, very good to uh, run in with uh, 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 harm bundles uh, here this morning. We'll talk on the U.S. economy and maybe even touch on Germany as well. We've got headlines coming out. The Wall Street Journal talking about Marvell in the semiconductor space. Uh, that's now an official uh, deal. Marvell and Cavian, Cavium to combine creating an infrastructure is the lead headline, right? Uh, Harm Bondel's with us. Let's let's go big and broad here, uh, Harm, on a Monday. Do you believe in the president's 3% GDP? Whatever the moment is, he's talking about we can do a sustained 3% or even higher. Do you buy it? Uh, unfortunately, no. Uh, um, first of all, we got to clarify, sustained uh, 3% growth means lifting potential growth towards 3%, not the last two quarters of 3% GDP growth, which we have seen uh, for various reasons. So the reason why I don't think we're getting back to 3% potential GDP growth, I mean, one important one is that we just have a less favorable demographic environment. Um, labor force growth is much slower than at any time after World War II, much slower. And um, so, and the second component of productivity growth, uh, of potential GDP growth, is potential right? uh, productivity. So the productivity um, is very slow. It has been slow in the 70s and 80s, and in the 90s, you know, we had the IT boom, but we know what sparked it. And yeah. just to say that by cutting uh, corporate tax rates and getting rid of regulation that would have kicked in in 2020, you know, uh, we are more than doubling our productivity growth. I have my serious doubts. So unfortunately, I have to say, no, I don't believe in it. Harm, what do you say to those that say we're already there? GDP huh. has a three-handle? Yeah, well, it, it, that's why I started to clarify that w the talk is about potential um, growth. Of course, we can always have one, two, maybe three quarters of consecutive strong growth. I mean, Obama had almost four and a half percent, I think, in the 2014s in two consecutive quarters. And nobody started saying that this is now sustainable. Um, over the last two quarters, I would say we have witnessed a positive impact from, from strong global growth. So U.S. exports have been surprisingly well. CapEx has rebounded. That was mostly energy related. And consumer spending has been holding up very well because of a drop in the savings rate. So I don't think none of that will be replicated uh, to that extent in for the coming several quarters. So let me be clear here, Harm. We don't need it, what they're up to down in D.C. You're saying we don't need the tax cuts for the U.S. economy, but at the same time, we can't achieve 3%. Now, as a politician, that's a very difficult message to send to the electorate, that A, it's not possible, and anything we do down here isn't worth it. So, so what does the future actually hold, Harm? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you are right. But of course, you raise some expectations. Uh, I, I guess that's the that's the game in politics right now. You overpromise and then you try to to deliver as much as you can. Um, you're certainly right. I, I agree. Uh, we do not need a stimulus, a tax cut in the in the current environment with the unemployment rate at what 4% and the output gap basically closed. We do not need a stimulus. And certainly not one that comes at the expense of another fiscal cliff in eight years down the road. Um, I think the time for tax reform would be right because, you know, I mean, it is always tough to get something through in Washington. And the time, the timing was good because Republicans were controlling all the branches of the government. So that's why I think they were trying to push for some tax reform. That's at least what we thought initially, you know, simplifying the tax code 
cutting the statutory ta tax rate, which makes sense because it's very high, but at the same time, close some loopholes so the whole thing would be more or less revenue neutral. Yeah. I think that would have been worthwhile, but the, the path we are going down right now, I think, is wrong. The path that we're going down right now always assumes in every discussion that somehow this creates growth. Does it create any growth? Is it about what people talk about where maybe the sign's in the right direction, but the magnitude or amplitude is not there? Or is that just a pipe dream and you can't even bring over tax cuts to any kind of economic growth? Well, we have, um, I mean, the numbers we talk about is the stimulus, if you want, of 0.8% of, of GDP. And we, we, we do think it helps GDP growth a little bit in the near term, maybe to the extent of a quarter of a percentage point. So we have a very low multiplier in technical terms, and we know that because there are plenty of empirical studies who suggest that among all the policy options that the government has, tax cuts for the corporations have the smallest multiplier. Why is that? Because corporations, they are flush in cash anyway. Interest rates are low, so what do we do? Do they do with the money? They buy back their own stocks or increase the dividends. Is that going to change? Well, we'll find out, but my best guess is no. I mean, the latest, the latest empirical evidence yeah. that we had was... was so, Ham, let's, let's be clear here. It's not going to change anything. Something this administration hopes that will happen is that those extra profits as tax cuts come through will go into higher wages. Have you spoken to a single CEO that says the benefits from tax cuts will go to the staff, will go to the employees? No, I mean, the most that we are hearing is that it brings back some investment and some jobs, right? There's no talk about higher wages. I mean, that they may implicitly think it will follow. But I have my, again, I have my, I have my doubts. The, the big problem of the U.S. is the, the quality and the education of the, of the labor force. There's just another NBR working paper out there that talks about vocational training, compares the U.S. with Germany. And, you know, that's well, what we have been saying all okay. along. Well, let's rip up the script. This came up this weekend, actually, over a beverage of my choice. The idea here of the German labor model, almost a guild model, of teaching people skills for labor. Can that move over to the United States Sure it can. And my understand, my, first of all, my understanding is that many governments, including the current one and the previous one, have talked to German officials of how to implement the model. I think the big obstacle is you would need an upfront government investment to this, to build the schools that you need, um, where the companies then can send their, um, their apprentices to. So I think it would, but that would be the type of, of change in the U.S. economy that would, would help. It would be a huge initiative, a huge infrastructure investment, mm -hmm. if you want, with, I think, would deliver a very big bang for the buck. How, how do you respond culturally to the idea that a large body of lesser educated America doesn't desire to do what I'll call labor jobs? Well, I think that always depends on how interesting these labor jobs and because, I mean, labor yeah. jobs, when we say it, we may think about like putting together some footballs or T-shirts or whatever. But I think the manufacturing jobs these days are very interesting, right? It's all it's mm -hmm. all high tech. That's why you need to train these people. Yeah. Um, so I think um, I think they would respond pretty well because we are we are right. seeing in Germany that people enjoy the, the, the work in, in these in these modern facilities. And actually, the pay is not right. so bad because productivity is high. Arm Bondels, thank you so much with Unicredit this morning, a briefing there on the American economies. With us right now, Mr. Sachs of Columbia. Jeffrey Sachs, of course, a founding member of the Earth Institute in the one block we have him with him today. We'll see if we can get to climate change. But far more is tax change, Professor Sachs, and tax cuts. Let's have you weigh in on Kevin Hassett, 
the PhD from Pennsylvania suggesting we can get the magnitude of growth out of tax cuts and a few qualified people, including Lawrence Summers and others, pushing back vigorously on the idea we can generate growth from tax cuts. Can we? We cannot pay for these tax cuts out of growth alone. We will have large budget deficits. Do you have a number in your head? I don't think the growth effect is uh, is is anything significant, and certainly we'll have right. uh, well over a trillion dollars in the coming decade of uh, of deficits, and possibly two trillion or more. Uh, all of this is what we are rerunning again and again: uh, false claims about self-financing tax cuts that end up with large deficits and growing public debt. And we should be alarmed right now because well, the debt to GDP ratio has doubled during the last decade, and it's on track to double again. And I, this is alarming for those of us who care about the future of our country. Jeff, I want you to speak right now to a Republican. They went to Columbia. They went to school. They got a real job. They're enjoying paying alternative minimum tax, but they're not an upper one percenter. They're making 285.7, and their spouse is making 142.5, and they're like, we should feel better than we do. Their aggregate taxes, they claim, are summed up large. Should they support this tax cut? They should certainly not support this tax cut because none of us in America should be supporting an unaffordable tax cut where 30% of the tax cut goes to the top 1% right off the top. And we know that whatever we do now is going to have to be reversed in the next few years because this is unaffordable. Yeah. The Senate is saying as much. It's absolutely shocking to have a, a Senate bill which says, okay, this is all temporary, but we're still I mean, going to give a, a, this unbelievable windfall to the richest right. people but in this John, country. John Farrow, does this, does this discussion happen in the United Kingdom where it's totally focused on the upper 1% instead of the 15 to the upper 5%? Well, on the contrary, I think the fiscal hawks in the United Kingdom remain fiscal hawks once they get in power. And I think maybe that's the big difference. If there's an ideology of the Conservative Party, it's consistent. It's consistent when they're in the opposition and it's consistent when they're in power. And I think that's something that maybe has gone missing this time. Professor, something that really fascinates me is the disconnect between the populist politics on the campaign trail last year, the economic problems that underpinned them, that got this president elected, and then the policy that's set to be executed down in DC. It doesn't seem to address the very thing that got the president into the White House. Our politics are thoroughly corrupted by money. Uh, the Supreme Court made sure that that was true with the series of terrible decisions that left the Republican Party in the hands of a few billionaires. The few billionaires are driving this process. They are repeatedly putting forward legislation that the public opposes. The public wants higher taxes on companies. The public wants higher taxes on the rich. The Republican leadership is proposing exactly the opposite of what their own constituents want. Why? Because people like David and Charles Koch, uh, who put in uh, enough money to buy the Republican Party leadership, threaten uh, congressmen and senators that uh, dare to oppose them with uh, hostile uh, advertising and with the primary uh, challengers uh, in the next election. So this is corruption that 
you're observing. This is not ideology. This is corruption. Our, our politics are broken in this country, and those of us who watch it up close are shocked by how much money changes hands day by day. We are only a semi-democracy at this point. This is completely different in the UK, which has its own uh, yeah. political challenges, but this is not the situation in the United Kingdom. It's not the situation in Western Europe. Uh, yeah. This is a unique uh, failing of the, the United States uh, and uh, other uh, corrupt countries. Professor, there will be some listeners that push back aggressively from the things you've said in the last couple of moments, but something I want to touch on with you in the in the 90 seconds that we have left is if the economic problems that got President Trump elected are not addressed in the next three and a half years, what are the political consequences when the next election comes around? Well, we know that uh, elections are not really uh, choices about policies. Uh, we've got growing violence in this country. We have uh, hate. We have people listening to completely different uh, news outlets or media outlets. Our country is uh, falling apart in the sense of uh, more uh, hatred, polarization, and violence. So I'm I'm very worried about what we see, and it comes down to the fact that our elected representatives do not represent those who elected them. Are you going to redo Price of Civilization? Are you going to freshen it up and update it? Uh, yes, uh, I'm going to. I don't want to be your book agent here, but let's go. What, <laughs> well, are, you, what are you doing? I, I am uh, constantly uh, um, worried about these problems, and my next book coming out is about our foreign policy, which is also in complete disarray. Yeah. We are unilaterally uh, giving away all of the structures well, of stability, growth, uh, and uh, safety right. that uh, were created in and the post World Jeff, War II period. We got to go in London, in New York, even on the telephone. We'll do it by semaphore. We got to get you back to talk about this linkage of foreign policy to our domestic I'll be Commonwealth. Now we go to the media wars, and we're going to have a, an intelligent conversation here, more on the content. His colleague, Craig Moffat, looks more at the distribution, the wireless, that kind of thing. Michael Nathanson and Moffat over at Sanford Bernstein for years in their own shingle, <coughs> excuse me, most successfully in the last couple of years. And Mr. Nathanson does content. This is about Mr. Murdoch, and I would say it's been the catalyst for the entire industry in every platform, the, the newsful over the weekend on this, I found stunning. What are you focused on this Monday morning of where we'll be in five years? That's a great question. I'm focused on Murdoch's realization that he needs to change his business, that the battle over scripted content fought by Netflix, Amazon at some point, it's going to get more intense and Fox may be of subscale in entertainment content to fight that battle. That's entertainment content. Do you keep entertainment separate from the entertainment of news across all these different platforms? Yes, the world's breaking down. We think sports and news is a separate business is model. It? Yeah, it's a better model because it's live, like your radio show. Every day is different, we tune in live. Is it? Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this is not tape delay. Okay. But the fact that Murdoch can win on live, live sports and Fox News and the sports networks, I think in his mind says we should separate the company into two businesses. One is entertainment, which gets more competitive. And the second is live. 
and live is what's going to fuel consumption going forward. John, Michael, help me out here. God. When you said Murdoch, yep. Rupert or James? Who's, who's driving or the Lachlan. bus? Or Lachlan. Where's the who's, other guy? Who's, drive, who's driving where's the bus the right now? Because 10 years ago, yep. if we'd sat here and said that 21st Century Fox assets would be up for sale because they're going to get smaller and streamlined and the other guys are going to get bigger, and I said that Rupert would be driving this, I'd be laughed out of the room. So now I see James and Lachlan coming into the business. I'm trying to work out who's in charge right now. That's another great question. It has to be a family decision. You know, we I'll never know those family conversations, but but this doesn't happen without his permission, right? This is not James and Lachlan doing this without Rupert's permission, but it makes a ton of sense, doesn't right. it? You know, it's what shocked people was the stock has been trading like death for a couple of years now. The Murdoch discount, as you write about, had came back in full force. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this rumor popped up that he talked to Disney. And because the journal keeps writing about it, it says to me, it's real. And it has to be probably from the entire family is rethinking their footprint going forward. It and seems to me that everything's up for grabs right now. AT&T and Time Warner. A Time Warner up for grabs again now. Could someone come over the top and have a look? We are, you know, we still believe and Craig covers T that we still think T gets his deal done in Time Warner. But if you're a Disney or a Comcast or Sony, you're going to slow down your Fox negotiations, yeah. your conversations until you figure out what happens with Time Warner. Because Time Warner, if that, if that wasn't acquired yeah, by T, it would come back out. And, and Brian Stettler at CNN doing a nice summary of this, I thought this weekend, is the whole ad model entertainment or digital video or news, whatever subpart, is the whole ad model broken or done? I break into two two bits. News and sports, because it aggregates live scale audiences, that, that's not dead. The entertainment model is, is breaking down. And the growth of Facebook and Google make it really hard to compete in digital, right? So you have 85% of all growth in, in digital going to two platforms. That's that's uncommon. Why is ESPN struggling? ESPN struggling because they're losing subscribers. They've got contracts that allow cable operators to drop ESPN. So they're losing subscribers above the rate of cord cutting. And they have very expensive contracts. Most notably, they they have an NFL deal that's a terrible deal. Right. Breaking news, yeah. Michael Nathanson. This from London. And Alex sends in, uh, John, an email. I have to quote it exactly. It's such important breaking news. Okay. Arsenal versus Tottenham is a big deal, Tom. <laughs> a big deal. Is that breaking news? That's breaking news. <laughs> I, I mean, I, they I can go to sports. I, I don't know. If, I, they're saying stupid Americans shut up and listen to Farrell. <laughs> <laughs> well, you bring up you bring up English Premier League now. Sky Sports in the United Kingdom. Here's a 21st century Fox asset. Sky. They want to buy the whole asset. Yes. I look at Sky Sports at the moment. They've got to pay more and more for the television rights, but the live audience isn't getting any larger as the cost increases. Right. That's not just a phenomenon in the UK. That exists here in the United States as well. So, so, so let me ask a couple of questions, yeah. and you can have as much time as you need to answer them. Okay. Okay. This deal with 21st Century Fox, what happens to Sky as James Murdoch wants his baby in the UK, one, and two... If sports is really that important, why is the cost of the TV rights getting higher, yet the audience is getting smaller? Okay, so can I go to number two first? Go for it. Okay, so I started my career at Bernstein covering European media yep. way back when. And we don't like European media because there's three-year rights 
windows. Yeah. So unfortunately in the UK, every three years is another negotiation, right? So the risk within the UK and eventually in the US is that you've got new entrants coming in who are going to bid those rights higher, right? So unfortunately supply and demand, there's a few set of great rights. Three-year windows make the rights inflation even steeper. And the inf- and the the, the audience decline, that's a worry, right? We Every week we write about the NFL's ratings coming down. That's a worry. They're still the tallest the tallest tree in the forest, so they matter in terms of driving reach and engagement. But it's a long-term problem. I'm not going to deny that. On the first question, yeah, we're kind of – it's kind of a mystery, right? So why are you thinking about getting out of an asset that you've spent your whole life trying to buy? It's it's a great question, and it's 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 a mystery to us. Where where is the landscape twelve months from now, or an institutional hold thirty six months from now, and what do you buy, hold, or selling? I mean, there has to be action on the part of institutional shareholders away from the soap opera of the Murdoch right. family. So we have two buys. Okay, the buys are Disney and Fox, and the idea is that Disney and Fox own strong positions in sports, also have content on in scripted entertainment that that could support long right. term. We have cells on Discovery, who we think are losers in this battle, and yeah. AMC Networks and Snap and Twitter. What is the distinction between your enthusiasm over Disney and your good and smart competitor, Rich Greenfield, who's been uh, tarred and feathered by Mr. Iger? With all good collegiality, yes. on a Monday, what's the distinction between Nathanson and Greenfield's view? Well, we're both Brandeis alumni. I, so it's a, I didn't awesome. want to bring that up. Exactly. It's a so we're thing. both from Brandeis. My view is that I think ESPN's got more pricing power, that they're going to be able to raise affiliate fees over the next couple of years. And okay. I expect when the, NFL, and when, the NFL, when the new NFL deal comes due, they're going to move from Monday to Sunday and save a lot of money. Can we discuss your Twitter short that you just yes. brought up? Yes, sir. What's behind it? Uh, well, two things. One is we think Twitter is not a very great place for advertising, brand advertisers. Have you looked at your Twitter feed? So for the first time yep. in about five years on Twitter – I saw a commercial, an advert yes. come up in my feed. I know that was me in the last exactly. two weeks. <laughs> exactly. But seriously, I think for it was Colin Resnick. <laughs> yeah. Good for morning, Colin Resnick. Exactly. For the first time in like five years, I saw one come up. Yes. What? Why and what's going on? <laughs> oh, that's going on because we think advertisers want to find a third platform besides Facebook and Google, right? So, so Twitter's out there trying to bang the drums, trying to get new brands on. The problem is. Where was that commercial? Was it stuck between a, a you know a Trump rant and a you know and a sexual harassment you know claim by someone? It's not the place for brands to advertise. That's one, and two. There's no they they, they create no EBITDA. You know, we look at the cash okay, flows. Ten, no ten seconds. Flow. Who's yes, going to buy them? Who's going to buy Twitter? I got to make some money this morning. Okay, we have a sell on Twitter. We think Twitter will be sold at half the price it is today, and probably some wow. traditional media company is going to buy it. There's no there's no EBITDA there. You can't buy it. It'd be a twenty billion dollar right down the moment you buy yeah. it, you know. Okay, this has been great. Michael Nathanson, um, trooper, particularly yeah. to come into our world yeah. headquarters on a Monday. He is with Moffitt uh, Nathanson, John Farrow and Tom Keene, with a precious six minutes with the number one expert in the world on hyperinflation. Steve Hankey is out of Boulder, Colorado from a few years ago. This is Kenneth Boulding's space in the Midwest of a Colorado of the 60s. And he has held court at the Johns Hopkins University and owns this discussion and the clarity of discussion of hyperinflation. Professor Hankey, wonderful to have you back on us. Is the mess of Zimbabwe, is it transferable to other countries? Or is it discreet to that cultural and political experiment? 
Oh, I think it's completely transferable, Tom. Uh, if you have a society that becomes totally politicized, which is in fact what's happened in Zimbabwe for the last 37 years of Mugabe's reign, you have politicians and civil servants making all the decisions. They're they're all over all aspects of life. Uh, in Zimbabwe, yeah. state-owned enterprises, capital controls, price controls, import controls, you name it. And and the result is waste, fraud, and abuse. Waste, we, we, fraud, and they abuse. They were a great band. Waste, fraud, and abuse played at Tulagi's up on Boulder Hill, uh, up on uh, Boulders the Hill years ago. Steve Hankey, everyone... Yeah. Everyone, you, you, you and I, you and I have been to that place. We I, have I, been to Tulagi's more. You. More, we've solved ISLM functions at Tulagi's a few years ago. Steve Hankey, everyone wants to know what you think of Bitcoin. Is Bitcoin? Does it have elements of 1637 and the tulips? Does Bitcoin have elements of the currency of Zimbabwe? Well, I think the answer to both of those is yes, because Bitcoin is a speculative, a highly speculative asset, of course, uh, but it, it is not a currency because a, a currency, to qualify as a currency, you have to have some semblance of a stable unit of account, some semblance. So it, it, it's more like Zimbabwe, you see, when they had the hyperinflation in 2007 and 2008, you had a situation where uh, the $100 trillion Zimbabwe note was virtually worthless in November of 2008. $100 trillion note. The, the inflation uh, was, was an incredible uh, 89.7 sextillion percent. Now, you've you got to get a pencil out. Just write down... 897 and then put 20 zeros after it, and that was the annual rate of inflation. All right, Steve, just because of time, I want to get my colleague John Farrow in here with Stephen Henke of Johns Hopkins University. John? Steve, why is the price of Bitcoin different in Zimbabwe compared to the price of Bitcoin that I see on my Bloomberg? And if there's really a future, doesn't there just need to be one price regardless of the exchange? Well, there, there there does have to be one price, but remember, you you have you um, have uh, stocks. Old Mutual trades in London and trades in Harare at at, at different prices. It, it it ends up uh, getting arbitraged out, but it take it takes a little time. It doesn't work perfectly. So it, there are there are two prices, obviously for. Old mutual shares in London and and in Zimbabwe because in Zimbabwe they they trade what they call a new Zim dollar. The economy there is officially dollarized, by yeah. the way, the U.S. dollar. But once the unity government broke down in 2013 and Mugabe came back uh, strong and and came in control, they started printing new Zim, Zim dollars. Uh, they, they call them bond notes, and, and uh, there's electronic money, too. 
and now they have another hyperinflation going. It's a lot smaller than the than the first one, but it's running mm-hmm. at about 325 percent a year. The inflation in Zimbabwe, and, and that second hyperinflation in 10 years yeah. is in fact what did Mugabe in. So that, Steve, that, 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 that that was when everyone just threw in the towel and yeah. says, we're, "We're not going to have this again." Steve, you specialize in troubled currencies. As we wrap things up with you, what is the future? of the foreign exchange market in Zimbabwe post-Mugabe? Well, I think the key thing is they will have to uh, follow the rules of dollarization, and that is if you have a dollarized country like Panama or there are 33 others in the world, they do very, very well, very rapid rates of growth. And they will have to prohibit the government from printing any kind of funny money that they're doing now. Well, we got to leave it there, Steve. We've got to get you back on again. Never enough time. Steve Hankey with the Johns Hopkins University on Bitcoin and, of course, his expertise on hyperinflation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.